0: Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I am Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, and I'm joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo and Editor Rachel Mutter. So let's dive right in. We just broke some news uh, from the White House. U.S. President Donald J. Trump issued an executive order about uh, the competitiveness of the U.S. seafood industry. And it seems like he has a bee in his bonnet about the uh, level of self-sufficiency, about regulations, uh, unsurprisingly. But in particular, if we look at what this order is about, the way that I read it, the way we read it, was it's about aquaculture development. So John... Give us a little bit of a sense of what's behind this and how long uh, this has been in the works, because this this does seem to follow on the the efforts this um, multi stakeholder effort that's been um, uh, ongoing for for quite a while. So, what'd you make of, of today's order? Yeah, I mean, just in broad brushes, you know, it, it
1: it's something that uh, Wilbur Ross, uh, Commerce Secretary, said couple of years ago when the administration was starting um, about you know trying to make the u s self-sufficient when it comes to seafood and trim the sixteen point eight billion dollar trades deficit it has with seafood so um this is uh, this is partially an answer to that I guess but yeah you're right uh, a a majority of it deals with Getting aquaculture um, if, off the ground, if you will, in the U.S. It's it's been talked about, and um, you know there've been a lot of promises and um, you know attempts to really bring aquaculture to the U.S. In the sense that uh, we see it in other countries, um, but it, it hasn't really materialized. I mean, there's definitely been some developments and I think land-based ironically is um you know the biggest development in recent time but this looks at offshore this kind of looks at all sorts of aquaculture and the main thrust of it is just to kind of um streamline the regulation process because at this point that tends to be where a lot of the development runs into uh to trouble so We'll see. I mean, a presidential proclamation is one thing; making it all a reality and building an aquaculture industry um, in this country is a completely different thing. So, um, yeah, we'll see.
0: So, Rachel, um, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, you've you've been covering aquaculture for a long time, um, and recently you've you've done a couple of stories on. China and its efforts on offshore aquaculture um, and obviously if China wants to make a industry happen it can kind of just make it happen and while Trump I'm sure wishes he could do that uh, it's not so simple uh, in the in the us or the western uh, the Western world but um, what's your take on this do you think this is actually going to have any impact or is this sort of a you know um, a, a, a another distraction in a time when uh, he desperately needs some, some distraction.
2: Well, yeah, let's start by saying it's it's certainly that, I'd imagine. I, I think that probably comes into play with everything that isn't um, sort of coronavirus related right now. Um, having said that, I do think this is quite a turning point. I mean, the, the offshore aquaculture industry in the U.S. has been sort of rumbling on there have been, there've been developments, but they've always been stymied by regulation um, and sort of the anti, anti-aquaculture bodies that are sort of against using any sort of coastline for aquaculture. And um, and although offshore is obviously offshore, uh, they tend to also have some sort of some land-based um, land based uh, structure that needs to be in place that, that has to be along coastlines. So... I think this is I think this is really interesting and I think all those people that have been working on offshore aquaculture in the U.S. for all these years um, will be celebrating today because I think possibly this is what it takes to actually cut some of that red tape um, and to start making things happen but but yeah but we'll see because if this is purely distraction then it's sort of meaningless um, and maybe nothing will come to fruition but but yeah, it's, it's interesting. And it's and it's I guess it's good timing in terms of, you know, the, the problems that are that are happening in terms of lockdowns and transport links. And, you know, so now I suppose is the time that you'd probably start worrying about your um, food security. I should have been worried about it a long time ago in my book, but but now obviously is the time Trump starts to worry about it. So, yeah. Interesting.
0: Well, it's good timing because you just wrote a, a column yesterday about this very thing, about how uh, the globalization of seafood has, um, in, in many ways, maybe gotten consumers a little bit out of touch with their local production. Um, and coronavirus, with everybody uh, staying at home, um, everyone being... Um, I don't want to say more nationalistic, but everyone being more aware of their local producers, aware of how long it takes for uh, food to get to them, um, interested in supporting domestic businesses. Y- you're right. It may be the kind of, uh, it, it may be exactly the kind of fertile ground for um, for a domestic industry to, to grow. It reminds me a little bit. It's not, um, again, I think Trump in many ways uh had some um with his administration when it started mimicked a lot of the um a lot of the the activities that that Putin had kind of put in place um in terms of protectionism and he sort of you know pushed those out pretty early and i think with his trade battles and things has um followed through on that um somewhat or attempted to follow through on it but what Putin did that was very interesting. And again, um being an autocrat, he's able to make uh things happen in a very different and more um effective is that the word effective way um but what he he did do was he sparked uh this domestic construction he sparked these domestic projects he he got this uh you know the the Russian industry looking more inward um now that said a lot of that if you pull people aside uh people will say it's it's for show you know that it's it's about ensuring that people's eye uh is on a different ball than the one that um that is is currently <laughs> the the one that um that's problematic and so like you said John whether or not this ends up being something long lasting is going to be um i think very very interesting but um yeah, I mean, it, obviously, land based gets doesn't get um, particular mention uh, a little bit. I think they they do use the term, but it doesn't. Um, you know, it it's a pretty broad order. But what do you think this will mean for land based aquaculture? Is there any? Do you see this as, for example, Atlantic Sapphire or uh, Nordic Aquafarms, or are, are those uh, types of producers that are coming in big with big projects? Do you see them benefiting in any way from this um, from this rule? And either one of you guys can go for that. Well, it's kind of hard to say because
1: uh, this is a very broad stroke and it feels a lot more offshore-ish to me than land-based. And when it comes to regulations that have to be dealt with, uh, the land-based folks have not had a lot of problem. Um, most of what they're doing is local um, regulation and They've done a really, really pretty good job of going into these municipalities and, you know, being transparent and uh, finding their way through all the regulations where in the U.S. where that hasn't happened is in the water. Um, You know, whether it be near or offshore, uh, there's just the U.S. coastline is dominated by people who want a view and uh, they're awful powerful. So. I don't know. I mean, that brings up the broader point. There's there's so many um, entities that are kind of covered in this executive order. There's fishing and, you know, there's aquaculture and others. There's going to be a lot of people in this industry, a lot of um, entities that want a piece of this action. So, you know, how that all shakes out is, is going to be rather interesting. I mean, I can foresee the Southern shrimp, uh, people rising up and, you know, wanting this, uh, this executive order to help them block trade. Uh, and you know, I don't know what I'm fishing, but something along those lines as well. So it's, it's, it's really hard to tell. Um, to get back to your question, if if land Base will benefit, I don't know. What do you think, Rach?
2: I mean, I think, as you say, I think in terms of regulation, this perhaps doesn't make that much difference to them because I'm not sure how problematic that has been to them in the past. You know, they don't have that coastline issue quite so directly, although they do have to be near a source of water generally. Um, So I suppose that comes into play. But, yeah, I mean... Yeah it's interesting I think I think in terms of thinking though in terms of sort of the broader picture of um this giving more credence to sort of localized food production etc this is this is kind of a dream come true for land based producers I mean this is what they've been pushing this has been their marketing story all along you know um we can produce close to markets you don't have to rely on um, Logistics—you don't have to be worried about um, politics and trade barriers. Um, this is food production on the doorstep of the market, and it also, you know, arguably has a better carbon footprint, which also comes into play here. Um, so, yeah, I think I think for them, this is good news. Yeah, I think I think they'll be celebrating this. Um, but yeah, as you say, John, I suppose they didn't have that many barriers in place in the first place. But yeah, certainly from a consumer sort of a marketing perspective, this is this is a good story for them.
1: Yeah, and the other thing is and this is more for the offshore segment, if they <clears throat> were able to streamline the regulations and make them transparent and workable, then I think you'd start to see some investment in US aquaculture. I mean, obviously in other places, Norway, Chile, etc. You see plenty of investment um, in in their sectors, and you don't hear as much uh, because there's so much uncertainty as far as regulations and things like that. So, if the outcome of this ultimately is a really streamlined, transparent set of regulations that govern development, um, that you know that could like the match to investment, which would then obviously lead to more development.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that um I think you're right Rachel that that land-based probably ends up being more of a of a winner um even even with a rule like this even it even if it is designed to support offshore aquaculture development a bit more than anything else um I still think the odds are in land-based aquaculture's favor in terms of how Quickly, you can get to market uh, from a regulatory point of view, from, um, you know, uh, just a community buy-in point of view. And you're right, John, without any kind of framework, it's just dead in the water. And um, I'd, it'll be interesting to see if investors decide that they would like to go uh, you know, um, green field or blue field maybe is the term into these projects, um, and, and, uh, invest all that capex into these offshore operations. Um, certainly they're doing it plenty in salmon. Um, and so there, there are some first mover, um, uh, or second mover advantages, I should say that, they can watch and see how these things develop in uh in Norway with some of the big uh, offshore uh, units or in China for example uh with some of that uh, those um projects but yeah it'll be interesting to see if it'll actually give investors confidence because ultimately that's what's needed is somebody has to start putting up big uh big money there's some Groups out there, high net worth individuals and some uh, certainly plenty of private equity funds that have put money into seafood and aquaculture. But it's all been relatively boutique from a U.S. investor point of view, unless you're institutional and they've bought into the big stock listed uh, salmon farming companies, for example. But um, but yeah, I mean, just based I think the wind is right now in land based salmon producers and land based aquaculture producers backs. But um yeah but but i'm sure that they'll get um you know they'll get some some benefits and probably the whole seafood industry will as well but it's difficult to know when you have the trump administration uh bringing together these projects who's in charge i mean the list of people that were um slated to be involved in a seafood task force that has 90 days to come up with recommendations um there was a lot of people that are supposed to be involved uh in this um people that may have other things to do right now. So, um we'll see if anything comes out of it and it's it's hard to know. Again, is this um is it something that's really got actual intention behind it? Is it sort of a a crass uh a crass drive to um, you know, get um get the uh, the working population seeing uh the Trump administration Pushing for uh, pushing for growth. I don't know. I guess we'll find out.
1: Yeah, and what I'll be looking for is to see which <clears throat> which industry industry, excuse me, groups uh, jump into this and start to have an influence over it. That'll that'll tell you if this thing is going to tilt actually towards aquaculture or it could tilt towards fisheries. The way it's written, because again, it's very broad. So. Um, Yeah, I I, I agree with you, Drew. I mean, the list of cabinet positions and sub-cabinet positions is is endless here. So that means they'll farm it out to their staff, which means the staff will go looking for the loudest lobbyists to learn the issues from, so to speak. So, eh, you know, we'll see. We'll see.
2: Yeah. And can I just jump in, too? Because I think I think this order coming from Trump has a sort of dangerous, um, a dangerous sort of backstory to it, I guess. And I think the people, as you say, who are going to jump on it are probably those, you know, big protectionists in the U.S. And I think I think it's really important to make, you know, to mark out the difference between protectionism and (laughs) and self-sustainability and food security because there, there mm-hmm. is a difference um and I think yeah I, I mean I <laughs> when I wrote that column it was before um it was before Trump's order came out just shortly before it came out and I, I now find myself on the same page <laughs> as Trump and Putin now apparently so that's <laughs> that's the place I really want to be um <laughs> so I think I think I think it has to be yeah, I, and I've had a few messages from people since I wrote the column that are that are very sort of protectionist in nature um and i and it's not really what i meant um you know i i think more what i'm talking about is you know i'm not a protectionist when it comes to trade at all and i don't think that's necessarily a healthy way to be i just think that we are in a different world now and it is worth flagging up that in this different world where um we can't transport food as easily and you know, there will be more concern over food safety than ever before, that it's worth flagging up that this is inevitably the way it's going to go, that, that food will have to be produced more locally. Um, so, you know, and I think then what has to be put in place with that is, is protection for those, those developing countries that are reliant on export trade. You know, something has to be put in place there. You can't just cut it off and start producing yourself so I think I think that's a really important distinction to be made and something that slightly worries me with this new order
1: yeah yeah and I'm sorry Drew there's one other aspect of this that um, you know needs to be discussed a little bit because I pretty much bet by tomorrow morning when we come back into the office there'll be at least three or four environmental groups that have sent out their uh, critique of, of this executive order. And, you know, we've uh, as an industry, we know that that lobby is very powerful, very influential, and has directed a lot of the development of this industry for better or for worse. So um, in fact, I already got a press release from one of the groups uh, calling it basically a travesty. Um, So yeah, so, uh, you know, the reality of this is going to bump up against so many things, but we can't discount the, you know, the impact that the environmental lobby will have in uh, thwarting this maybe um, to a large degree. I don't know.
0: Well, you know, it, it this sort of pivots kind of a, um, perfectly to a, another issue we were going to talk about on the podcast today, which is the, uh, the meat shock, the meat shortage, uh, whatever we want to call it. Um, but there have been some major impacts from the spread of coronavirus among uh, processing plant workers in uh, in poultry, in pork and beef. Um, and it's gotten pretty serious. Um, and it's even, you know, I it reached the White House, I believe last week, President Trump uh, invoked the Defense Production Act to keep uh, factories moving, which was a confusing, uh, order because it can't really be enforced, and there was a lot of confusion on the part of unions representing those workers as to what it meant and whether it meant that it was giving power to the companies to um, force people to come to work despite being sick. So it's been quite a mess, but this is not that far away from seafood at all, Um there's a lot of different ways that we'll uh that we'll slice this up uh, in our coverage in the coming weeks I'm sure but initial thoughts uh are are that this uh this rise in meat prices this fear about meat availability um it, now that it's hitting the headlines and now that it's on consumers minds and and you have meat companies um coming out and saying hey the supply chain is broken. When you have the CEO of Tyson saying that, um, that's pretty scary. Um, But whether or not it's going to uh, help, hurt, um, have any kind of impact at all on seafood, um, it does kind of go to this whole idea that you were talking about, Rachel, and that you do talk about in your column, which is food security. Um, And certainly COVID has made food security a... It, it's a completely different issue than it than it uh, ever has been before, because it's not just supply chain uh, logistics that we're talking about, and it's not just restaurants being closed. It's the people that actually do the work. So, um, so I, I'm just curious if either one of you think that there will be any kind of defense production act esque ask. Uh, of the seafood industry? Do you think that if there is some kind of supply shock to the meat sector, um, will seafood then be called upon to um, somehow fill that gap, if that's even possible? Um, Yeah, John? Well, I mean, I think there's already
1: been the shock, right? So uh, a lot of uh, retailers are already rationing, for lack of a better word, uh, meat and poultry purchases. So, the shock is is underway um whether that uh president trump will use that similar act the defense act to kind of uh engage seafood uh my guess is no but i don't really have any anything to support that it just is kind of a feeling but you know the, the the one irony of this is and rachel was talking about in her column about local production i.e. self-sufficiency of a country to produce its own food. The whole meat and poultry industry in the U.S. is locally produced. We don't import hardly any of it. And that's still broke. So mm. I think it goes to your point, Drew. It's it's about the workers in, in a lot of cases here, especially in this case. But so, you know, I, I don't know where that leaves us all, but I did see today that, the uh, plant-based people from beyond meat are really close with landing a deal with McDonald's, so maybe they're going to end up the winners at at the end of all this. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean that's yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, I think all your all your predictions, John, will probably come true. Um, but yeah, I spoke I spoke to um, a rubber bank analyst earlier. Uh, earlier in the week, and and she was yeah she gave some pretty stark statistics on what's happening in the meat supply chain. Um, I think she said that beef production in the US was down fourteen percent in April, um, and that and she sort of gave the gave the impressions that really that was just the beginning of what's going to happen. And in China, I think pork production is down by like twenty percent or something. Um, so yeah, this is uh, this is a big deal. Um, and as the as the Tyson CEO pointed out, I think we're probably not quite appreciating what happens down the line um from this. But but on the on the subject of sort of seafood filling that gap, I mean, one, I don't think that's possible. There's just not the volume of seafood to do that. Um and two, I don't I don't honestly see how seafood is really much different from the meat production industry in this sense, in terms of what restricts it. Um, in fact, I'd say it's even more restricted because because it's so heavily imported and exported rather than being produced locally john as you say with the beef industry in the us so yeah i i don't see how any any directive could really could really change that um but yeah
0: well, well
1: I- and keep in mind we, we all eat 16 pounds of seafood a year so 70 like 70 pounds of meat and 80 or 90 pounds of chicken so it's not like people are clamoring for seafood, and all of a sudden this is going to make them go clamor for seafood. I mean, I hate to be negative about it, but I think uh, I think for all the points you pointed out, Rachel, and and just the uh, consumption alone, uh, <laughs> I don't I don't think the seafood's going to come to the rescue. It might get a you know a bump, but
0: I don't know. When you can't have both you know you can't have uh you can't have protectionism and uh steady supply uh as of now and it, you can't change it overnight you can't remake these supply chains overnight i mean it's happening very quickly in in many different sectors but um even if there were the ability for uh for companies to shift. You know, like you said, John, it's not like overnight people are going to say, you know what, I was craving a hamburger. I think I'd rather have a filet of fish. No, they'll probably go for the Beyond Meat burger is what they'll do. Um, but but it's, it, it's interesting, and I do think that it is going to uh, – it'll make seafood look uh, less expensive. That's one positive thing probably for the seafood industry. Is uh, these higher prices? That's always been a challenge for um, for uh, seafood. has been the cost, and so it can suddenly look, you know, not so bad when you have really high uh, beef and pork and poultry prices. So, um, so it's kind of seafood's opportunity to lose, is the way that I see it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it is for real, and um, you know, the the president again. Um, saw the headlines about Wendy's having to stop selling hamburgers at 18% uh, of its locations, and he was on the phone. He was on it. He called the uh, the owner of Wendy's, Nelson Peltz. Or the, I think Nelson Peltz runs it. Anyway, he's a billionaire, so they run in the same circles. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and he got him on the phone, which should fix it right up. Uh, interestingly <laughs> enough, the story where I was reading about Wendy's And, um, I guess this says more about, uh, the things that I search for and, um, you know, I, I guess maybe movies spend, but, uh, the, the sites where I've been reading about Wendy's, I have this ad for Amazon fresh for a movie to deliver me salmon. So who knows, maybe that's just me. I probably use the search term salmon quite a bit more than the average Joe, but, uh, but still, you never know. Maybe, maybe uh, the analytics uh, folks over at Movie are already trying to position themselves to be an alternative there. Who knows? Who knows? Um, I will say, and and Rachel, you uh, you put the story out because it it came out broke late last night um, that uh, Ocean Beauty uh, in Cordova had its first COVID nineteen outbreak. Now that's the first one. Certainly that we've seen publicly reported, certainly the first one I've heard of um, uh, in terms of uh, an executive or a worker or, uh, you know, a support person in Alaska, in in the Alaska seafood sector, getting um, getting infected. So um, I think it comes at a very. Yeah, maybe it's good that it comes at this time. But uh, Copper River opens in a week from today. And so, um, you know, the the Alaska salmon season now is it's already had this cloud of COVID hanging over it. And now um, it has uh, it has its first case in seafood and incidentally, the very first case in the city of Cordova so it's kind of like the worst nightmares that some of the the communities have been talking about particularly in Bristol Bay uh with people uh coming from the outside um for the fishing season this is exactly the scenario that people have been painting and saying this is this is exactly what we're afraid of um so anyway uh, so it just it just shows that the whole idea of protecting workers of ensuring that you're uh, protocols are in place. It's, um, it's critically important. I think Ocean Beauty was able to catch it before the person uh, was uh, kind of uh, in and around the factory. But who knows? Um, who really knows? And I think it's almost, I was talking to one seafood executive who's just sort of said, look, it's unavoidable. This is going to happen. It's not about all of this um, it's not about showing all the precautions you're taking to get community buy-in. It's about what protocols do you have in place when it does happen? Because certainly uh, Tyson, Cargill, Purdue, Smithfield, JBS, blah, 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 they didn't go in planning for this. And they don't have to put, you know, 10 workers in the same room at the end of the day together. Um so anyway, so it's um yeah, the 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 very shock that's hitting meat could certainly um hit seafood as well. Um so, we'll see about that. Um last little thing to hit on um research and development. Uh we were uh we were discussing um some of the areas where seafood companies would need to be tightening their belts. And um one of the things we looked at our colleague Demi Corbin in uh in London. Looked at investment in alternative feeds looked at uh r and d spend uh for researching uh different feed formulas for researching reduction of marine ingredients, and just whether or not that's anything that people um anything that the feed companies um would be moving away from and you know our thinking on it was okay, insect meal is exciting algae inclusion is exciting. Um, there's there's a lot of different things that um are perhaps the future of of feed, but maybe now's not the time to um you know to be spending um to be spending money and, and chasing these things. But um, surprisingly, Rachel, they um they are actually kind of of the mind that it's time to double down right now, given that aquaculture may have a really really big role to play in in food security
2: yeah i mean now is not the time to be reducing your uh research and development your your investment in in science and progression i think (laughs) i think if anything is clear this is this is exactly the time that this area needs to be stepped up um we've spoken about it before on podcasts but technology um is sort of a a crucial point for for the aquaculture industry in particular um and i think yeah and it plays you know it plays to the strengths of of food security or rather food security sort of needs that needs that investment in uh, in technology and and research in order to in order to be possible um so yeah so yeah unsurprisingly to me the every feed company that Demi spoke to said that no absolutely not we are not reeling back on research and development this is the time to invest because you know if if we can't be in a sort of very crude way, if we can't be trading fish meal and fish oil in quite the same way that we did before, um, for all kinds of logistical reasons, um, then we need to have alternatives and we need to have alternatives that are easier to transport. And, and actually all the alternatives are particularly sort of the, the algae, the algae route, it can be produced, you know, with a pretty small, um, footprint. Um, it can be produced close to market. Um, So, yeah, again, it just it just plays back into into my column because everything's about me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, but it it absolutely plays to that point. You know, this is this is a theme, I think, of, of what's developing now that we will be more reliant on science and, you know, and and all the things that come with that for our food security going forwards.
0: Well, hopefully. Let's see. John, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I, I think Rachel took care of the feed side, but uh, it's worth noting, too, that this investment in a, a technology and equipment and R&D is happening on the processing side. Uh, you know, we've had some articles lately about butter and morel and seeing this uh, uptick in demand for automation um, in these plants and, and seafood plants, and especially now since so many have discovered that they needed to pivot to a retail kind of format for products so um, yeah I think I think that'll be one of the kind of wonderful things that comes out of all this when it's all said and done that the focus on technology across a wide swath of the industry will um, will be there and the money will will be spent to uh, you know to invest in it
0: yeah, I think food food efficiency uh and, and efficiency of production is going to be really 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 important. You're absolutely right and I think um you know going back to what we were discussing about uh worker health as well. Um you know the the spacing of workers, uh the the concessions, I guess you could say being made to um to ensure that workers are staying healthy and that coronavirus is um is uh, less likely to spread those are reducing efficiencies of these plants in the way that they were set up significantly so um so now is the time where this sort of move toward fewer and fewer people touching food products is going to really really take off and it's already happening like you said John um you know, not too long ago, if you remember, John, we were, uh, we were on a, a factory trawler vessel that uh, fishes in the Bering Sea, and that was what one of the uh, one of the executives there that that we met with said was, you know, we've got X number of people, you know, whatever hundred some odd people, that are on this vessel, and you know, we, we have to get that down. We have to find ways to reduce uh, our crew to make to make this all work um so it's not just a um it's not just a, a commercial concern um it's also just a straight availability it's it's really going to be difficult i think to do this in a uh in an efficient way going forward um and and do it with the amount of workers that are needed to produce the the products now so um yeah i think the whole the factories will be completely retooled osha regular, uh us health and safety regulations will be uh, overhauled, I'm sure, as they will in, in UK and Europe and Asia. So that's going to require more uh, efficiency, um, and that is going to require investment and research, and, um, yeah, so it doesn't just go for the actual food products themselves. Thanks, both of you. We'll leave it there. Uh, remember that we have a webinar coming up next week hosted by John Fiorillo. We will be looking at the plant and cell-based seafood sector we have a fantastic lineup of uh, panelists. I'm really, really looking forward to it. We've got Roger O'Brien from Santa Monica Seafoods. We have Dominique Barnes, who is one of the co-founders of New Wave Foods. Lou Cooperhouse from Blue Nalu. We have Nutreco. We have Good Catch. It is an amazing group of people um, to talk about this uh, this growing trend. Um, and you know, we mentioned Beyond Meat earlier. Uh, it's just it's not going away and so um, it'll be really exciting to see what the uh, what the executives all think about where the sector is headed and whether or not uh, whether or not it's a threat or an opportunity so I'm looking very forward to that again that is on the 12th you can find out how to register on our website uh, or you can go to intrafishevents.com and register although it's pretty close to being full so if you do want to join you better do it quick um and uh and yeah uh we will be back with you next week on the podcast and remember introfish.com you can find our newsletters there to follow all our daily news uh and all our headlines rolling from across our bureaus so thank you all folks and we will speak to you next week